Father God, we adore you for your righteousness and your power and your holiness. We adore you for your love and your goodness and your wisdom. And we confess before you that we are truly unworthy of the grace that you give us. We're unworthy even of the air that we breathe as we wake up in the morning. We're unworthy of the mercy of the sunshine. And yet we thank you that you see fit to shower us with all of these good things and so many more. And we thank you for the love that you've given us in your son, Jesus. And we ask that as we look at your word this morning, that you would encourage our hearts, that your Holy Spirit would move and minister among us, would meet our needs, would just shower us with the riches of Christ, and would humble us before your glory and would spur us on to love and obedience as we seek him. And we ask these things in his precious name. Amen. So I would love for you to open your Bible with me to Genesis chapter 35. If you don't have a Bible, we have this welcome table back here, and we would love to give you one of our Bibles. You're welcome to get up now and grab one or take one on your way out. Uh, Let that be our gift to you. Or if you want to just pull one up on your phone, you can do that as well. Last week, we looked at Genesis 34. We've been making our way through Genesis, and we looked at Genesis 34, and I pointed out to you that God was suspiciously absent from that chapter. There was no mention of God at all anywhere explicitly in chapter 34. And now, as we transition to Genesis chapter 35 today, we're going to be looking at just 15 verses And in those 15 verses, the name of God appears 10 times, then an additional time with the phrase God Almighty, and then 10 or 9 more times uh, embedded in the words Bethel or Israel, okay? So the little L on the end of Bethel and Israel is the name for God, the Hebrew word for God. So in these 15 verses we're going to encounter a reference to God 20 different times, which is a pretty glaring contrast to what we saw last week. And that's because in the scene from last week, we were witnessing Jacob and his family do what they thought was right in their own eyes. And now I think we're going to see Jacob and his family doing what is right in the eyes of God. And so it would make sense that we would find God pretty much absent in the last chapter, and now uh, God's going to be explicitly present in this chapter as Jacob and his family seek God. And I want to just point this out because the fact is that God is always with us as believers. That's what Scripture teaches us. Just like God promised always to be with Jacob, but God is most obviously and most powerfully present with us when we are seeking Him, when we are living lives that are holy, that please him. So let's pick up in verse 1 of Genesis chapter 35. God said to Jacob, Arise, go up to Bethel and dwell there. Make an altar there to the God who appeared to you when you fled from your brother Esau. So Jacob said to his household and to all who are with him, Put away the foreign gods that are among you and purify yourselves and change your garments. 
Then let us arise and go up to Bethel, so that I may make there an altar to the God who answers me in the day of my distress, and who has been with me wherever I have gone. So they gave to Jacob all the foreign gods that they had, and the rings that were in their ears. Jacob hid them under the terebinth tree that was near Shechem. And as they journeyed, a terror from God fell upon the cities that were around them, so that they did not pursue the sons of Jacob. And Jacob came to Luz, that is Bethel, which is in the land of Canaan, he and all the people who were with him. And there he built an altar and called the place El Bethel, because there God had revealed himself to him when he fled from his brother. And Deborah, Rebekah's nurse, died, and she was buried under an oak below Bethel. So he called its name Alon Bakuth. So this chapter opens with God appearing to Jacob and commanding him to finish this journey up to Bethel. And I think it's quite possible that all the trouble that Jacob and his family fell into in the previous chapter, in chapter 34, is because Jacob uh, failed to return to Bethel in the first place. Instead, if you remember, when he got back to Canaan after meeting his brother Esau, where did he go? He went first to Sukkoth and then to Shechem. Well, if we go back to chapter 31, I know that was a long time ago, but God appeared to Jacob when he was still living in his father-in-law's house, Laban's house, and God told Jacob to return to the land of his fathers. And it's not expressly stated there that God commanded Jacob to go back to Bethel, but Bethel is where God first encountered, or where, where Jacob first encountered this God, and God made these promises to him. So I think it's reasonable that when God said to Jacob, return to the land of your fathers, that God was directing him to go back to Bethel, that place where God called him. And we didn't read verse 9 yet, but if you want to look there real quick, it's interesting because it says that um, when Jacob gets to Bethel, God appears to him and it says, where does it say that, God, that Jacob came from? He has arrived in Bethel from Paddan Aram as if Jacob never went to Shechem, as if he had never settled any other place in Canaan. And yet we were told back in chapters 34 and 33 that Jacob spent quite a bit of time once he came back to Canaan in uh, Succoth and also in Shechem. So here's what I'm getting at. It seems that the narrator is telling us here that Succoth and Shechem were not part of the plan. Jacob was not supposed to dwell there. Jacob's journey began when he left Laban's house in Paddan Aram, and it is now completed when he arrives here in Bethel. See, I think that what we're being kind of told here is that Jacob's trouble when he was in uh, Shechem is the direct result of Jacob not finishing the journey that God called him to take. Even after Jacob wrestled with God, what we see then is that he and his family were really only half committed to this God, Yahweh. Jacob only partially returned to the land of his kindred. He didn't fully trust God to even give him the land. What did he do in Shechem? Do you remember? He purchased a piece of property from the people of Shechem. Not only that, but Jacob and his family were not wholeheartedly committed to Yahweh God. They weren't exclusive worshipers of him alone because Jacob's house we see here is full of idols and false foreign gods. These are probably the idols that Rachel took from Laban when she left her father's house. They might also be idols that Jacob's sons 
took from the people of Shechem when they killed them all and raided their homes. And so here's the point. Yes, Jacob and his families, or family members, they follow Yahweh, but Yahweh has not been their exclusive God. He's just one God among many that they look to for their needs to be met. And now, as God appears to Jacob again and commands him to return to Bethel, in verse 2, Jacob asserts himself as the patriarch of this family, and he tells his wives and his children, put these false gods away. It's time for us to be devoted to Yahweh alone. Purify yourselves. Change your garments in preparation to meet Yahweh as we arrive in Bethel. And I think Jacob can be a little dense at times. I've said that along the way as we followed his story through Genesis. He's maybe not quite as sharp as we would hope that he would be. But he does understand this much. Jacob knows that Yahweh God will tolerate no competition. This God will have no gods beside him. I keep using this word Yahweh God, so let me just clarify in case you're kind of new and catching up with us. Yahweh is the Hebrew word that is given as the name of God in Scripture. Our English translations tend to translate it simply as the word Lord in the text. We don't translate it Yahweh, but it's a kind of name for the God of Israel. Anyway, Jacob understands this God will tolerate no competition. God will not share the devotion of Jacob's heart or your heart with any other God. I think this is a little difficult for us because we are infected as humans with this disease called sin that turns our heart into this ever-producing idol factory. As Christians, we are called and commanded to wholeheartedly love God alone. We're commanded to have no other gods. We're commanded to love the Lord our God with all of our heart, all of our soul, all of our strength, all of our being. The totality of who we are exclusively belongs to this God in love and devotion. And yet, we are often guilty of giving our devotion and our hearts away in love to false gods, lesser gods, other things that compete with this God. Power, money, security, these are idols that we often fall for. Sex or comfort, notoriety, fame, we seek the praise of men or the acceptance of people. I could go on and on and on, maybe as I'm listing some of these other ones that you're guilty of come to mind, but you know, like I do, that we are a people who are in a constant battle to give our devotion to Yahweh alone, the Lord God exclusively. Our hearts are supposed to be a temple to this God, but that temple is often under siege, tempting us to give our devotion to other things. And Jacob is commendable here. Finally, after chapter 34 and some other scenes, we get to praise Jacob because he calls his family to this single-minded devotion to God alone. And he symbolizes the purity of this commitment by telling his family, change your clothes, which I think is a kind of change of identity. It's not necessarily that their clothes are dirty, but that it's, they're connected to an old life. Like Ephesians 4, 
through 24 says, and like Gabe was even sort of referencing, Jacob is calling his family to put off the old clothing of their idolatry and put on fresh clothes that represent their renewed commitment to this God. And I think this is a reminder for us as Christians about the importance of holiness. The importance of holiness. Since God loves us with an incomprehensible passion, because he's jealous for us like a a husband who loves his wife and would be jealous for her affection, God will not be satisfied with sharing us with other gods, false gods. His desire is for our hearts to belong exclusively to him and to him alone. And we're relieved to see in this scene that at least for a moment, Yahweh God has indeed captivated the heart of Jacob and hopefully the hearts of his children as well because they turn over these false gods. They turn over the jewelry, which is representative of this idolatry. It ties them to these idols. And what does Jacob do with all of these things? He buries them. Remember a couple of weeks ago when we were looking at the scene where Jacob and his family leaves Laban's house and I spent a bit of time mocking the idols that Rachel stole from her father Laban? I mocked those gods because what kind of god can be stolen from its place and then sat upon? It's kind of embarrassing. If you were a god, you wouldn't want that on your resume. Well, again, these gods are mocked. These gods are buried under a tree and they're powerless to stop their own burial. They can do nothing to prevent this humiliation. Burial under a tree is just one more point where these false gods are made to be mocked, and they can do nothing about it. They're silent in response to the burial, and they're powerless. Well, the perceptive listener who knows the biblical story might say to me, Ah, Grady, but you, you say that Jesus is God, and wasn't he also humiliated when he too was buried in a tomb after being crucified on a tree? Grady, won't you admit that the God that you worship was also humiliated at the moment he was buried in the shadow of a tree? And it is correct that the one true God, the incarnate God-man, Jesus Christ, was humiliated in his burial. Philippians 2 verse 8 makes reference to that. But unlike these idols that stayed buried under that tree, you know where the story goes after that. Our God, after he was buried, through his own glorious power, was raised from the dead and walked triumphantly out of that grave. No help necessary. Jesus was not humiliated in death. Rather, he swallowed up that humiliation and he swallowed up death In fact, turning the humiliation around to show death as being mocked. Our God showed his power in burial because he rose. Whereas these gods remain in the grave that Jacob digs for them. And well they should because that's where idols belong. Put to death in a shallow grave while Jesus reigns triumphant. Sits on the throne of our hearts. 
And after the burial of the false gods, then Jacob and his family finally make their way south to Shechem, upward in elevation to Bethel. And as they journey there, God brings this great terror upon the people in the cities dwelling in this land so that nobody along the way attempts to assault Jacob and his family as they make this journey. Now, if you remember in the last chapter, it was Jacob who was fearful. He was fearful that after his sons butchered the people of Shechem, that the other inhabitants of the land might rise up against him and attack him. But Jacob forgot that God had promised to be with him. And instead of these people coming to attack Jacob, what happens is the dreadful shadow of God Almighty rises from behind Jacob as he travels and it falls across the land, causing all these other peoples to fear this man. Not because Jacob is powerful, but because the God who stands behind him is God Almighty. And so Jacob returns finally safely to the place where he first encountered God, to Bethel. And we're told in verse 8 this kind of strange detail about Rebekah's nurse, Deborah, that she dies and she's buried at Bethel. Um, I'm not sure what to make of this. Rebekah was Jacob's mother. You probably remember that. Deborah is referenced back in Genesis 24, verse 59, but she's never mentioned anywhere by name in Genesis, okay? So this is kind of strange. Um, we're going to find out at the end of this chapter next week that Isaac... Rebecca's husband is dwelling in Mamre, which is further south. So I don't even know how Deborah came to be at Bethel. The text never even explains it to us. And Genesis never speaks of Rebecca's death. So not to be too confusing, but Rebecca is Jacob's mom, Isaac's wife, or Isaac's husband. Nope, Isaac's wife. <laughs> and... Uh, it's recorded just in Genesis 49 that Rebecca dies, but it, it, doesn't, it just says that she was buried. It, it records no information about her actual death. Okay, so this, the point I'm trying to make is this is very strange. The only reason I can think of recording this information here is to just kind of further solidify this idea that change is taking place, okay? Jacob's past is dying away. Deborah, her life spanned several generations from even maybe Abraham to Isaac and now to Jacob. She, her death is one more indicator that Jacob's old identity is passing away. All right, I don't know any more than that, so let's move on. Pick up in verse 9. It says, God appeared to Jacob again when he came from Paddan Aram and blessed him. And God said to him, your name is Jacob. No longer shall your name be called Jacob, but Israel shall be your name. And so he called his name Israel. And God said to him, I am God Almighty, be fruitful and multiply. A nation and a company of nations shall come from you, and kings shall come from your own body. The land that I give to Abraham, or the land that I gave to Abraham and Isaac, I will give to you, and I will give the land to your offspring after you. Then God went up from him in the place where he had spoken with him. And Jacob set up a pillar in the place where he had spoken with him, a pillar of stone. He poured out a drink offering on it and poured oil on it. So Jacob called the name of the place where God had spoken with him, Bethel. Okay, so 
once Jacob gets to Bethel, then God appears to him again, and God repeats two major things from the past, from their past interactions. First, God repeats this name change that we saw a a while back, that Jacob will no longer be called by his given name, Jacob, which came to him from his parents at birth. Instead, now he's going to be called Israel. And the second thing which God repeats here is this covenant promise that was given to Abraham, Jacob's grandfather, way back in chapters 12 and chapters, or chapter 15 of Genesis. The covenant promise that has defined this family and guided this family since God first called Abraham out of the land of Haran and into the land of Canaan. And so this scene, I think, should really create in our memory some flashbacks. It should cause our memories to go back to chapter 28, when God first appeared to Jacob at Bethel, and God promised there that he would be with Jacob. Because in that scene, and also in this scene, Jacob responds in almost exactly the same way. Remember, he set up a pillar and he anointed it, and he does the same thing here. Only this time, I want to point out that after everything that Jacob has been through, He's come to understand so much more about this God, Yahweh, hasn't he? This God who's protected him. This God who has provided for him. This God who has guided him and watched over him. Who's enriched him and prospered him. Jacob has come to understand, finally, after all this time, that this God indeed is faithful. That's been proven to Jacob throughout the test of his life over and over and over again. And of course, also this scene should cause our memory to flash back to God's interaction with Abraham way back in Genesis 17, because there are some really intentional parallels. Let me try and remind you. In Genesis 17, God appeared to Abraham as God Almighty, which is the same name God uses here. And God gives to Abram in that passage in Genesis 17 a new name. No longer will he be Abram, but he will be Abraham. Just as Jacob's new name is reiterated here, from Jacob to Israel. And in Genesis 17, God promises to Abraham that he will make this man who has no children fruitful. He will have descendants. They will multiply. So much so that kings will come from the line of Abraham's seed, and his descendants will possess the land of Canaan. Just as God reiterates that very same promise now to Jacob here in Genesis 35. So Jacob's interaction with Yahweh in this passage at Bethel helps us remember that although it's been many decades since God first appeared to Abraham back in the early chapters of Genesis, and it's been many generations Everything is on schedule. Everything is going according to plan. God is faithfully at work to complete everything that he promised that he would do for this man and for his family. So I I think where I want to kind of go as I move towards a conclusion this morning is actually to suggest to you that Jacob at this point is working as a kind of type for mankind. We find this actually... Uh, quite a bit in Genesis, what we might call typology. In Jacob, we find a typology for humanity. 
consider the wider redemptive historical narrative of the Bible. And let me explain what I mean by that. Redemptive historical narrative, okay? I don't mean to weary you with uh, fancy phrases, but I'm just referring to the big story that the Bible tells from Genesis to Revelation, okay? It's historical. It happened. It's redemptive. It's moving towards salvation. God is weaving the human story of history to a redemptive end. I want to teach you these concepts, so that's why I use the fancy words from time to time, but it's pretty simple. The history of the Bible, the history of the world, is ultimately a redemptive history. God is at work to save a remnant of people out of the mess that we have made. That's the redemptive historical narrative of the Bible. All of human history is moving from ruin to redemption in the person and work of Jesus Christ. So let's think about Jacob as a type of man as he reflects this greater story. Jacob came out of the womb grasping at his brother's heel. Remember that? And so he was given the name Jacob, which means he grasps. And it became apparent later in life that Jacob would not only grasp his brother's heel when he was born, but also that he would seek to take from his brother Esau the birthright that was not his, the blessing of the firstborn. He would seek to grasp at that as well. Well, remember all the way back to Genesis 3 all those months ago? We saw Adam and Eve grasp at the fruit that God had forbidden them. They sought to take what was not theirs by right, and they did take it, seeking to be like God, although that privilege was not given to them. They grasped and they took. For Jacob, his effort to take what was not rightfully his led to what? Do you remember? It led to him fleeing the promised land, escaping the home of his father. And just like Adam and Eve, who were cast from the garden paradise, they were made to leave the home of their heavenly father, God, which he had placed them in. And so then in both Adam and in Jacob, we see that this grasping ambition to take what is not theirs by right leads to separation and expulsion. Well, in this foreign land then, Jacob goes to work for his father-in-law Laban, and for much of his life he works for this man with no financial compensation. He gets his brides, but he's not paid as a result of his work. We could call that a kind of slavery. Just as mankind, in rebelling against God, was plunged into the slavery of sin when Adam and Eve grasped at what was not theirs by right and tried to take it by force. And so as a result, the human story becomes a story of mankind in sin wrestling with God, which is always a losing battle. God always wins that one. If you don't know by experience yet, you're sure to find out soon enough. And Jacob himself as a type of mankind literally wrestles with God We're told in that passage, if you remember, that he prevails, but I think what that refers to is only that he doesn't give up and he's persistent, because in the end, 
God simply touches this man on the hip and he's undone, he's defeated. He's left with a lifelong limp and a new name, Israel. God wrestles, or he wrestles with God. And again, the same is true for man. We try to wrestle against God and prevail over him to be like God on our own terms, but God has only to touch our hearts and we too are undone, aren't we? And in that being undone, we are blessed to walk the rest of our lives with the limp of humility. Our pride comes crumbling down. We see ourselves for who we are, broken, needy, standing before a perfect holy God. And just as Jacob received this new name, really a new identity, so those of us too who when we wrestle with God find that we are defeated, we receive a new name and a new identity. No longer are we called enemies of God under the wrath of God, but we are called children of God under the love of God. And then in this scene here, Jacob is given a mandate to be fruitful and multiply. Just as Adam was also given a mandate to be fruitful and multiply. And the church The body of Christ in this new covenant era is told to be fruitful and multiply by taking the gospel out to the ends of the world, creating a new humanity that belongs to the kingdom of God. And God says to Jacob that his descendants will be kings. Just as Adam and Eve were created to rule and to reign, to have dominion over creation. And in eternity, the sons and daughters of God will rule and reign with Christ forever over a new heaven and a new earth. And then finally, Jacob is told here that the land of promise will belong to him and it will belong to his children after him. And humanity is told in Revelation that God will restore the garden paradise that he made in Eden, something new, something better, and peace and contentment will reign over all who trust Christ and surrender to him. And so what I'm getting at is the life of Jacob is a kind of microcosm for the redemptive story of humanity. I hope you see. It it becomes a story of restoration, transformation, a story from being outcast to being a story of a homecoming. Despite the tragedy of human history, history is in fact a beautiful picture of God's grace at work in the world. And I want you to see that because as we made our way through Genesis, I have harped pretty harshly on the state of the world as we see it and experience it. And this does not diminish that. The world is a broken place. But history is, in fact, a beautiful picture of God's grace at work in the world. Now, we might expect, after all the blessing that Jacob receives from God, that the rest of this man's life would just be easy breezy. But unfortunately, nothing could be further from the truth. As we're going to see in the next couple chapters of Genesis, Jacob's life continues on with much pain, much heartache, many difficulties and trials. In fact, in the very next scene, which we won't get to today, Jacob is going to watch his favorite wife die while she gives birth to his last son. And then another of his sons will end up engaging 
in a kind of incestuous relationship with one of Jacob's concubines. And Jacob will go on to mourn and bury his father Isaac. And more pain will come when he loses his favorite son Joseph. And all of these things in Genesis take place immediately after God says to this man that God is blessing this man. We would expect everything to get better from that point on, and yet it doesn't. And so there too, in the pain and suffering of life, Jacob acts as a type for people like us. I would say that each of us are on a journey like Jacob. We are making our way from paradise lost, separated from God, to hopefully paradise found in coming under the dominion and rule of Christ through repentance. And that journey for every Christian is a journey from a faraway country into this land of promise, which comes to us only through many trials, many heartaches, much suffering, and many difficulties. And it's a lifelong journey that requires great faith and perseverance to finish this race. Jacob is repeatedly told by God throughout his life to go, and he must go, regardless of what trials or difficulties or circumstances will meet him there. And we are called by Jesus to come and to follow him, regardless of where following him may take us, whatever circumstances might then lay in front of us. And for those of us who've been following Jesus for some time, we know that the promise of his love, the promise that he will be with us, does not mean that he will snatch us out of the pain and the suffering and the trials that will come. It doesn't mean that he's going to take us away from the difficulties of this broken world that we live in. We do not get to escape tragedy in this life because we belong to Jesus. But we are reminded throughout Scripture and particularly in the New Testament, in one place I have in mind, in the book of James, you just heard it read, that we will be blessed for our perseverance. James 1 verse 25 says that the one who looks into this perfect law, the law of liberty, and who perseveres, being no hearer who forgets, but a doer who acts, that person will be blessed in their doing. God's word is the perfect law. It's the law of liberty. It's not about constraint. It's about freedom under the wisdom of God. And it sets us free by teaching us to trust in this God, regardless of what our circumstances might be. Much like Jacob was required to trust God when he was up against Laban and Esau. And we are promised that if we persevere in that trust for God, not just by claiming we believe him with our words, but by actually showing we trust him with our actions, giving proof to the claim, then we are promised that we will be blessed in our doing. Blessed both in this life as we walk in obedience, regardless of the difficulties that might come our way, and also blessed forevermore in the kingdom that is yet to come when God rewards the faithful. And so my closing point for you this morning is this. 
The redemptive story of God's Word teaches us that God is taking us from ruin to redemption. But that journey is a difficult one. It's a journey that requires us to cling to God, to grasp Him through everything that might take place. And I want you to understand, for probably most of us in this room, I mean, I bet if we had time to tell the stories of heartache, there would be lots of them already. But I do want you to understand, for many of us in this room, maybe most of us in this room, the future yet holds for us the pain of the reality of living in a broken world. Heartache, suffering, tragedy, possibly persecution, difficult trials, certainly tears, much like you can see the monsoons boiling on the horizon in summer, those realities are still on the horizon for many of us in this room. But the perseverance is worth it. This is the lot that man has fallen under because of sin. But in it, God is with us. And at the end of it, God promises the blessing to those who trust Him through all of it. God Almighty will be with us and will bless us in our perseverance. And like Jacob, we can be sure that God is with us on this journey. And as God's Word teaches us, even though we walk through the valley of the shadow of death, in love through that valley and through that shadow, God is ultimately leading us home to His everlasting peace. This is the redemptive story for all who trust in this God. So we're going to take communion now, and the way we're going to do this is through intinction. Our worship team is going to come forward now, and they're going to lead us in a couple of songs. And as we sing these songs, if you have placed your faith in Jesus and you are a Christian, then you're invited to actually get up from your seat whenever you're prepared in your heart to do so. And we have two tables in the back of the room. You're invited to make your way to one of those tables. You'll find there crackers or bread and some juice. The cracker represents the body of Christ. And you can take that morsel and you can dip it in the juice, which represents the blood of Christ. And you can just eat it right there at the table as an act of worship as you remember the great price that Jesus paid for your salvation. Here's an opportunity like Jacob gave to his family for each of us to purify ourselves, to put aside the false gods, to renew the single-minded commitment that we should have to God. Jesus himself was made to endure the suffering of humanity that I was just referring to. He suffered our sin, the suffering of death, the sorrow of the human condition, all because of our rebellion. Jesus did not deserve that. He took it for you, for your sake. Although he was God, he died and he was buried to make atonement for your sin, and yet he passed through that valley of the shadow of death, and because he was faithful, God raised him from the dead, and in his resurrection we have eternal hope that we too shall be raised. And in that resurrection, all the tragedy and sorrow and suffering of this life will be cast off forever. 
the paradise that we lost has become a paradise now found again through the body and blood of Christ. And so as we take communion, let us remember all that God has done for us. Let's pray. God, we thank you that though we lost this paradise, you in your mercy chose to restore it to us through the work of Jesus. We thank you for his sacrifice, for his body and blood given for us unworthy sinners, that we might be redeemed out of our sin and given newness of life, that we might be set free from slavery to sin and also the fear of death, that we might walk in holiness and obedience and also in the joy of everlasting life. And God, I pray that you would fill our hearts with a renewed love for you, a renewed commitment to follow you, and that we would seek the blessing that comes with faithfulness. And we thank you that as we make that journey, you are with us. In Christ's name, amen.